Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On Commons People this week, lockdown is almost over. Today, we can say that our long national hibernation is beginning to come to an end. But the struggle continues for some. Uh, Cricket is perhaps our most socially distanced uh, team sport. We've lost half the summer, but there is another half left to be enjoyed by players and spectators alike. And does Robert Jenrick have to go? The Secretary of State can see, as we can all see, how this looks. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. Rachel Wearmouth is also here. Hi Arj. Hi Rachel and we're delighted to be joined by Labour's Shadow Culture Secretary Joe Stevens. Hi, nice to be here. Hi Joe. how are you? How's lockdown okay. been? Lockdown's been okay. When the weather's good it's great, when the weather's not good it's a bit grim but you know we've just got to get through it haven't we? Nothing it's else made- Yeah, it's maybe a bit too great at the moment. We're all boiling hot. Anyway, uh, it's official. After three months of lockdown, we're coming out of hibernation, to quote Boris Johnson. The Prime Minister has announced a widespread easing of restrictions with pubs, restaurants, cinemas and a host of other venues permitted to open from July the 4th and rules around meeting family members and friends relaxed further. Johnson has also cut two metre social distancing to one metre plus and demanded the return of bustle. But there are concerns that he may have moved too far too fast. Let's hear the PM. Today, we can say that our long national hibernation is beginning to come to an end and life is returning to our streets and to our shops. The bustle is starting to come back and a new but cautious optimism is palpable. But I must say to the House, it would be all too easy for that frost to return. And that is why we will continue to trust in the common sense and the community spirit of the British people to follow this guidance, to carry us through and to see us to victory over this virus. And I commend, Mr Speaker, this statement to the House. Uh, Paul, is Boris Johnson's optimism bias becoming a potential danger? Well, he loves a bit of bustle, doesn't he? Um, I mean, he kept saying that repeatedly this week. And in in that big announcement, he was at pains to say, well, you know, this is all about being cautious. But everyone knew that, actually, he really wanted to uh, let rip on the real Boris, which is Mr. Optimism, you know, Mr. Sunshine. I mean, I wrote this week that, you know, an optimist thinks the glass is half full, a pessimist thinks it's half empty, but a realist just drinks the bloody pint. So I think what we need in, in many ways is I think the British public are the ones that are, are the realists normally, but they do need guidance and they need help. So you've seen that, you know, there's extraordinary scenes on, on Bournemouth Beach yesterday. Um, is that because everyone suddenly thought, oh, well, let's, let's uh, tear up all the social distancing rules? 
it might not be. It might be that people think, well, actually, the government are saying you can do certain things outdoors. You can do it within your family group. So, you know, and they didn't plan as a mass hive to go to, to Bournemouth Beach. So they might think, well, actually, this isn't our fault. Um, please don't blame us for when things go wrong. And I think that's part of the problem with this week, um, because... Um, Boris Johnson in his true fashion seems to be uh, trying to shift responsibility, should we put it politely, um, uh, is saying that somehow if it does go wrong, it will either be the public's fault because he's changed the rules and it's up to common sense or it will be up to local authorities, um, you know, because now it's not a police matter, it's local authorities. But have they got the, the you know, the personnel to actually respond to crackdowns wherever they are, whether on the beach or in a school or in a workplace? Um, Joe, you're an MP in Cardiff and Wales is moving more slowly and cautiously in, in lifting the lockdown. Do you think Johnson's got this wrong and Wales have got it right? Well, in Wales, we have, I think on the whole, seen very good compliance with the restrictions that are in place. And I think a lot of people, certainly the feedback I've got is that people have wel welcomed the cautious approach. They feel better about it. Obviously, people are frustrated. Um, but what's really rankled with people is the departure by the UK government from this four nations approach, because, you know, we went into lockdown together. Um, but I mean, you know, the UK government have not talked to Mark Drakeford, the first minister in Wales for a number of weeks. And this is why it's more difficult now where you've got different arrangements in, in each of the four nations of the UK. Ideally, we would have all come out together all in the same way, all at the same time. And what, what do you make of George, Boris Johnson's motivations behind, you know, ordering such a, a widespread easing of the lockdown going further than other nations? Well, I think what Paul says about trying to shift the blame is absolutely right. I mean, we know from, from Boris Johnson, from his history as a journalist and then as a politician, that he always looks to shift the blame to somewhere else when he makes mistakes. And what's really frustrating is that, you know, we, we need this all to work. There's no, there's no capital for anybody in the country for this not to work. Um, and if it doesn't work, we've got to make sure that we put things right so that if there's a second wave, it works second time round. So, you know, we've supported as the Labour Party safe and gradual easing of restrictions, but it's got to be careful, it's got to be planned. And it's got to be clearly communicated. And I think that was the main problem with stuff early on, which is the lack of clarity around government communications, which has just continued and continued and continued. And with the reducing of the two metre rule, again, I don't think there's real clarity around that. And that's why, presumably, we see pictures like we did on Bournemouth Beach. Yeah, uh, Rachel, with the news that the lockdown's being eased, we've also had the news that the daily coronavirus press conferences are coming to an end. Uh, how useful do you think they were and, and what will Johnson want to kind of focus on now, do you think? Yeah, I think that the the, the scientists have been very useful for the, for the public, but I think overall that the press conferences have actually been useful for the government in terms of... In terms of uh, like handling the situations, uh, maybe he's deflecting some criticism and just dominating the, the media agenda. I think, uh, I know Joe pointed out there that Boris Johnson's background as a journalist, and I think that's kind of uh, at the core of this, actually. You know, the, the, even the timing of the press conference, um, it hits certain deadlines. So I think I think overall they've been sort of more useful for the government, I think, than trying to hold the government to account. I think um, it, two things kind of really gave that as, away as well, I think, um, 
just in terms of in terms of how the press conferences are used when you looked at sort of when all of a sudden they stopped doing the um the the, the global death comparisons you know that chart just kind of quietly disappeared when the figures became kind of difficult for the government and um and then just when the the, the you know the, the in the early stages of the crisis you would always see the uh, government minister kind of flanked by two of the scientists um, or, or two experts and that that really went down after um, the whole Dominic Cummins row you know the kind of the scientists just um, fell away and I think that was kind of an interesting aspect as well and now all of a sudden we're, we're not we don't have any at all. Uh, Paul I just wanted to ask you as well because you've just come out of the lobby briefing where there's been some discussion of tests and trace which is obviously crucial in lifting the lockdown uh, and there's some concern I think that um, people aren't following it or contacting it. Yeah, I think the problem is that the, the new uh, data which came out today suggests actually there's a fall in the numbers that are being reached and contacted by NHS Test and Trace. Now, we kept being told in the first couple of weeks, look, you know, these teething problems, things are just going to get better. Well, they're not getting better, they're getting worse. And that's obviously very worrying um, for everybody, because as Joe says, you can't have a proper exit strategy without this being in place. Um, in many ways, Keir Starmer's big strategic call has been to focus on tests and straight taste and, and say, actually, look, we'll hold your feet to the fire on this. Yeah, we want loads of testing. It's a great idea, but are you actually doing it? Um, number 10, we're quite defensive about it, but said, look, you know, if, if, if people don't comply, they have in reserve the idea of make it more compulsory. Um, and they, they were saying they would urge the public to take part. So they're obviously worried about it. Um, but as I wrote last night, I mean, there are some moves within government to actually, instead of applying that, that stick, apply a carrot. And the carrot would be, why not um, pay people uh, a proper rate so that if they're worried about losing wages from self-isolating for 14 days, if they're worried about being contacted by a, a friend or the contact system and told you've got to stay at home for, for 14 days, then why not give them a bit more extra financial help? Joe, would Labour support that? Maybe not making it compulsory, but um, offering a carrot, as Paul says. Well, I think going back to the original question, though, I mean, this is again a thing about trust and confidence in the communication from government. You know, what we've seen throughout this, everything, and, and part of this, I think, has come from having these daily press conferences where the government feel they have to make some big announcement every day. And we've seen it over the weeks that pretty much everything they've promised and announced, they failed to deliver. So that then undermines public confidence in the response to COVID. And that will play a part now in, I think, people not wanting to give their names and addresses if they go to the pub for a drink, because what happens if some person then is tested positive and then they're traced, you know, if the tracing system works even, and then they have to stay home from work. And, and we've always known from the beginning that there was this dilemma for many, many people between looking after their health and being able to earn their wages to, in order to survive. And, and that dilemma's still not gone away. So whilst the two treasury schemes that have been put in place have helped lots of people, um, there is a big gap in the middle and masses of people have fallen through. And the SSP, the statutory sick pay element of that is a big problem. As we try to return to something approaching life before lockdown, it's time to step up your shaving game with Harry's. Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were fed up with overpriced razors, 
started Harry's to fix shaving. And by taking less profit, Harry's can ensure great quality for fair prices. By going to harrys.com forward slash huff, you can get your trial set for £3.95, featuring razor handle, five blade cartridge, firming shave gel and travel blade cover. That's harrys.com forward slash huff. Theatres and other performing arts venues are also scheduled to reopen, but under the condition that they do not host live performances. This is obviously causing deep concern in the sector and the government is mulling over a bailout package. But it may be too late for some venues as we're already beginning to see some theatres make staff redundant. Let's hear Joe's opposite number, the Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden, on this. To the other points you raised, look, I I really uh, want and I understand the need for... uh, all of these venues to return with people in them and indeed eventually uh, without social distancing. But that can only be done if the public health allows it to happen. And I think there will, you see different scenarios. So I think in relation to stadium where, where people are outside and they're much bigger and there's more scope for social distancing, it may well be that you can do that sooner. I know particularly with the performing arts and theatres, when you're doing that in a confined space, there are greater risks there. This is why we've given it a lot of attention. Um, Paul, any suggestions of a rescue package anytime soon? Well, we asked Number 10 about this yesterday because there was an excellent FT story suggesting it could happen. Number 10 didn't knock it down, although they were in true Number 10 fashion, uh, careful not to sort of completely uh, endorse what was in the FT. And they originally suggested, well, don't believe everything you read. But then they finally admitted, yeah, we are working with the arts sector on possible... um, uh, ways extra extra ways of support. The thing is that um, they're talking about extra support for the for theatres and the art sector, but what will that actually mean in practice? Um, you've seen up and down the country the reaction to theatres and people whose livelihoods depend on this. You know, freelance artists and musicians, live music in particular. Um, it's not just actors, but it's the whole creative sector in Britain that rely on live performance, and they're all saying, look. You left us out from this July 4th announcement. When you do that, you have to come up with something that's concrete to help us out, show us a sort of roadmap, to use your own language, to how long will it be, for example. You know, Dowden, within minutes of that um, announcement, took fright when the gyms got really nervous and said, why aren't we included in this, on the swimming pools? And suddenly... Then he said, well, by mid-July, we're looking at opening the gyms and swimming pools. But it's as if, obviously, it's more difficult with enclosed spaces like theatres. But even open-air theatres have been apparently told that they can't work. So it will be really interesting to see what detailed suggestions they do come up with. And actually, I'm I'm sure Joe's on top of the detail of this, but what the sector really wants, that that will be interesting. What could make it work? I mean, obviously, they need some kind of subsidy to tide them over the winter, because they can't get full houses. But uh, what sort of capacity would that work at? I don't know. Yeah, Joe, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about creative industries um, are one of the biggest growing sectors of the economy. It employs more than 2 million people. Um, And there's been complete silence from the government. You know, we've had all this stuff trailed about, oh, there's going to be a support package. Um, Oliver Dowden gave an interview to the Evening Standard on June the 8th, you know, flagging up this um, package that was going to arrive, but we've heard nothing. The only thing that's happened is this DCMS commission that's been set up under um, Neil Mendoza, but nothing's come out of it. 
you know, we're, we're five and a half, six weeks on from that, and we've heard absolutely nothing. So, you know, the time time is really running out. There are theatres all over the country closing. There are thousands of people receiving redundancy notices because, you know, we, we've got the job retention scheme about to taper off. Um, and if they got something very, very soon, we are going to lose loads of jobs out of this but we but more importantly it makes the recovery more difficult because once you lose the skills and the people from the sector it's very hard to get it back and you know we're talking about creative people so if the government wants theatres and other live performers to be able to do something even if they can't operate how they used to do you know but these are creative people they can do this sort of thing but nothing is it just seems like there's complete silence from government and it's um i think it's really awful for many reasons but particularly because whilst we've all been locked at home during this time what have we relied on we've relied on culture and music and arts online um that's what's kept us sane it's what's kept me sane <laughs> um and it just feels like a really nasty payback yeah i, I mean chris witty said that social distancing is likely to remain in place possibly till next spring summer is it possible to keep things like theaters afloat for that long there will be some casualties we've already seen that um but you know the buildings so for example you know wales millennium millennium center which is just down the road down the road from me they're having to basically mothball their building until they can reopen they host big touring productions like phantom of the opera and that sort of thing um and they've and there are hundreds of people being made redundant um but it's it's making sure that the people themselves um you know are kept in the sector i think that's what's really important because the buildings the buildings can be reopened but if you lose the people that's that's what the damage that's where the damage will be to a sector that's worth over 110 billion pounds to the economy we can't afford to do that so do you think there should be some kind of continuing sort of furlough scheme for creative sectors and sectors that can't reopen properly or, or operate a yeah. profit so we, what we want to see from the government is a sector-specific package, and we've talked about, you know, some flexibility around the furlough scheme as the schemes taper off. Because um, in most cases, in other sectors, as the schemes taper off, it will be replaced by income rising because they're reopening. It's not going to work in a lot of, well, it's not going to work in live performance spaces, and they can't operate at reduced capacity because even when it's normal, they've got to be nearly full in order to make a profit. So it's a particular issue, and that's why it needs a particular solution. But we're just not hearing anything. Yeah, Rachel, Dowden's often called the Minister for Fun. Um, <laughs> if suddenly loads of venues start closing down around the country and the fun ends, how damaging could it actually be for the government? Um, well, I think I think a lot of what Joe's just talked about there in terms of how important it is for the for the sector and for the economy is all like, you know, very, very obvious. But I think there's also sort of an, an impact on on communities as well. When you think about community theatres, when sort of kids come out of lockdown, they've potentially fallen behind in school. Things like community theatre is like so important. Um for communities at a local level as well you know when you think about all of the austerity we've, we've seen for the last sort of 10 years the things that sort of hurt a lot of a lot of communities were you know the closure of libraries the closure of leisure centers you know things that you had in your community that gave you a bigger sense of that and sort of helped in a, in a different kind of way to education to boost social mobility and i think 
I think it could be really damaging for the government long term if they if they don't have it sorted out. And then there's and then there's just where we find a lot of our British talent that we absolutely come to. Love. For example, Fleabag came from the stage. You know, I mean, if if that kind of thing falls back, I think it'll it'll be really felt. Yeah, Joe, why why is there a delay? Do you think? Like you said, it's been five or six weeks since this commission was set up. Why aren't they getting on with it? What's your sense? My sense is that they don't think it's important. It's, you know, uh, maybe they think that it's, well, maybe it's a political decision and they don't think people in arts and culture vote Tory. I don't know. But it's, um, but it's just astonishing, the complete kind of stonewalling of stuff on it. Um, and, I mean, like Rachel says, you know, if you think about towns and cities all over the country, you've got like your local football club you've got your local theatre they're the sorts of things that are at the heart of communities they don't just provide a club playing football on a Saturday or performances in the evening you know it's where people meet it's where they learn things it's where people develop learn skills get jobs um and we saw after the crash in 2008 that the areas that were the least resilient, that lost the hearts of their communities, were exactly those sort of places. And we can't let what happened after 2008 happen after COVID. But, you know, they're far less resilient than London, which, although has been hit massively because of the kind of inbound tourism link up with arts and culture, you know, as a city, London is much more resilient than other places around the country. Yeah, Joe, I just wanted to ask you as well, uh, a few Tory MPs, including Greg Clark, are very concerned about the continued ban on cricket. Uh, Boris Johnson said the ball is a vector of disease. Uh, is it time to lift that, given it's a very socially distanced sport and a great part of the great British summer, or English at least? I'm well, Welsh. England, England and Wales cricket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like a lifelong <laughs> cricket fan. I, last year, I spent far too much time watching cricket during the World Cup, <laughs> I should probably admit to. But there are a lot of upset cricketers this morning and yesterday after after the news. I mean, it just it just seems really random, the approach that the government's taking. Um, badminton, I know it's indoors, but that's socially distanced. You know, there's lots of upset badminton players. There doesn't seem to be any strategy. And Paul mentioned gyms, um, you know, you've gone from saying, right, gyms, you're going to be able to open to the night before the announcement. No, you can't. And now, oh, yeah, you can maybe in the middle of July. Um, it goes back to this problem about really poor communication and without clear communication, it just creates so much uncertainty and that creates more economic risk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, despite the big announcements from the government this week, the headlines are becoming increasingly dominated by the row over Robert Jenrick's controversial personal approval of a London housing development proposed by Tory donor Richard Desmond. Under pressure from Labour, the housing secretary was forced to release documents on Wednesday, which revealed a series of text messages with Desmond in which the media mogul made clear that fast approval for the West Ferry Printworks scheme would save him paying a multi-million pound levy to what he called the Marxist Tower Hamlets Council. The Prime Minister considers the matter closed, but the pressure on Jenrick to resign is only growing. Let's hear Shadow Community Secretary Steve Reid. After the Secretary of State forced the scheme through, and remember in the teeth of opposition from his own advisers and the local council, the beneficiary, Mr Desmond, made a donation to the Conservative Party. What an astonishing coincidence. The Secretary of State can see, as we can all see, how this looks. 
cash for favours, mates' rates on taxes for Tories that everyone else has to pay in full. Does this government really believe that taxes are just for the little people? No one is going to believe a word they say on levelling up until the Secretary of State levels with the British people over why he helped a billionaire dodge millions of pounds in tax after they enjoyed dinner together at an exclusive Conservative Party fundraising event. Paul, uh, well, can you just kind of summarise where we are with this? And is this normally this sort of thing normally a resignation offence? Um, well, let, let's let's start off with what it's all about. I mean, it's it's about Richard Desmond, a, a billionaire, former newspaper tycoon, uh, who used to run the Daily Express. Just imagine how how even more provocative this story would be if you still uh, own the Express. But put that to one side. Now he. He applied for planning permission to build a £1 billion development uh, with 1,500 homes on the site of the old West Ferry print works in the Isle of Dogs. Um, now, in, in November, he sat next to Robert Jenrick at a Tory fundraising dinner at the Savoy, and he sat down and he played him a video about this development on his mobile phone, something we only know about thanks to the, the Sunday Times last week. Um, the planning inspector of the local council recommended it, that development should be refused, but then Jenrick overrules them, gives the go-ahead on January 14th. Um, now, the thing about the, the big, big thing about that date is it was the day before a community levy was introduced that would have cost Desmond 40 million quid. And that would have actually also helped the local community, but also um, effectively what this did was it meant that um, Des um, Jenrick effectively waived affordable housing rules and gave Desmond sort of about 106 million in extra revenue. So that, that's where we are. And then two, late, two weeks later, January 28th, Desmond donates £12,000 to the Tory party. Now, obviously what happened is that there was a high court challenge and Jenrick then later admitted uh, or his department admitted it was um, unlawful by reason of apparent bias and the whole thing was actually quashed. So what we're left with, well, you're not left with all those homes, you're not left with, no one's happy, but whether it's a resignation matter, it seems that the bar for resignation is, <laughs> has changed over the years. I mean, Dominic Cummings broke all those rules and, and there is a suspicion that because the PM dug in so hard to defend Cummings, maybe that's why he's digging in to defend uh, Jenrick right now. We, we were in a lobby call and there were lots of questions about this. Uh, and, uh, you know, and number 10 just stonewalled every single one of them with the simple line that actually the cabinet secretary has said that the prime minister views this is a matter which is now be closed. What's what's wrong with that? Well, the problem is it just gets the heart of the problem with our ministerial code at the moment. Who's in charge of it? The prime minister is ultimately the judge and jury of deciding whether his own ministers have, have broken that code. The code is clear. If there's an, even a perception of a conflict of interest, then a minister has broken the code. And that's it's as plain as day that there's a perception of it. That I mean, in particular, one I thought... I personally thought it was a smoking gun memo last night released by the government where a civil servant says, on timing, my understanding is the Secretary of State was insistent the decision issued this should be issued this week, i.e. tomorrow, as by next week, the viability of the scheme impacted by the change will be impacted by the change in the in the community levy. So you've got in black and white someone saying the real reason this was pushed, the timing for it, was to make sure that Jenrick avoided a big levy that would have helped the local community. Now, that just obviously stinks to a lot of people. But as I say, I come back to the point, the government um, is getting away with it because Boris Johnson can get away with it under the rules of the ministerial code. 
Yeah, just just quickly, Paul, do you think Boris Johnson's kind of set a precedent with Cummings? And if Jenrick goes or is sacked, then actually Tory MPs will be up in arms because he's defended Cummings at all costs, and but then he's losing a minister. Yeah, I mean, uh, there is an element of that, but let's for, let's not forget on the the very different. This is actually about hundreds of, of tens of millions, more than 100 million quid that could have gone to a local community. That actually is a really serious matter. Cummings, you can you can argue the toss about whether he did or didn't break the rules or whether he should or shouldn't have been fired um, and the impact he had on public health. But this is different. This is about, um, you know, did a minister effectively help a Tory donor to avoid um, helping a local community? Yeah. And, you know, I suspect um, a lot of Tory MPs are desperate for, for Jenrick not to go, but I've talked to some Tory MPs who think, actually, he's going to be toast in the reshuffle anyway. Why not get rid of him now and um, actually make it look like you're not going to tolerate this stuff? Yeah, Joe, uh, Labour's stopped short of calling for Jenrick to go. How come? I think they've dug their own hole and they're going to carry on digging. Um, you know, this whole thing... It, I know the Prime Minister said, or the spokesman said, you know, as far as the Prime Minister is concerned, this is closed. But it isn't. It really isn't. It is a, it's got a really bad stench about it. And, um, and this reflects now on the Prime Minister. You know, it's a matter of judgment now, his judgment. Um, and he's got form on this because he just tries to shut things down. You know, we think back a week or so ago with the free school meals in England over the summer holidays. It was like, no, no, we're not doing this. Shut it down. And then he's forced into a U-turn as a result of, you know, questions and a debate and Marcus Rashford. So so I don't think this is the end of it by any means. And although over the last few years, kind of all the rules have been ripped up in terms of how politics and Westminster operates, um, this whole thing about cash and decisions and access, reinforced by what Nadim Zahawi said this morning on Radio 4, mm-hmm. you know, people do not like this. It kind of leaves a nasty taste in the mouth. And, um, and I don't think this is over by any means. Yeah, Rachel, um, do you think this is having cut through, as, as, as we say in Westminster? Do you think people are noticing this or is it a bit too complicated or boring? Um, I think just based on sort of the conversations I've had with like friends on Facebook over the last few days and what have you, it has has some cut through. And with those who, with those who the story has reached, it, it it has it's giving them this feeling of just complete outrage, and they're saying it's complete corruption. But I think overall, probably more people are more worried about the coronavirus crisis generally and what it means for their health and their jobs. But I just think it's astounding that back to when Boris Johnson left hospital and um, how the, he had for the first time a connection that a Conservative Prime Minister had with the NHS that none of them had before him, arguably. And it just seems that he's kind of squandered that kind of position that he might have had um, in terms of the trust that he could have had with the public. Since then, everything's happened with Dominic Cummins. Um, this has happened with Robert Jenrick. And I just think there's like... It just seems like an, an erosion of, of trust. And I wonder if that'll come back to bite him a little bit further down the line when people are less focused on the immediate threat to their own health and well-being. Yeah, Paul, does, does Boris need a, uh, a John Major-style back-to-basics campaign? 
<laughs> I'm not sure anyone would really want that, would they? I mean, don't forget that Jenrick is only 38. I mean, I make myself sound old here, but um, I mean, Joe might agree with me because we're the same age, but um, he's 38. You know, he's got plenty of time left. You could sack him now and he could rehabilitate himself. I mean, you know, look, at there's lots of them that have done it over time. Um and it's actually quite useful for government to to have retreads and, and say, look, if you keep your nose clean, then you can come back. But just for the integrity of government, for the integrity of the Tory party, not to have that stench of donors and cash. Um, and more importantly, as Rachel says, this this bigger picture of one law for them and one law for us, that that's the most damaging thing. If anything has cut through from this, that might be it. Um, it's not quite got there yet. I don't think many people know about generally call this planning thing. But this idea of one law for them and one for us is the most toxic thing for any Tory government in particular. Um, so I, I'm just slightly baffled why they just don't burn him now. Yeah. They just seem to just don't seem to have taken a stand against any of these things. And I think you, you'll be easily able to accuse them of double standards when anything, when any, any other question comes up later down the line, wouldn't you? So. Is it is it time for Keir Starmer to pick this up and run with it? Do you think anyone well, wants it? Keir says it's a matter of judgment for the PM, and I agree with him. You know, it's uh, there's only one person who can sack Robert Jenrick, and that's Boris Johnson. Fair enough. Right, let's move on to the quiz. Uh, and this week's edition is all about the number ten coronavirus daily press briefings, which have sadly got <laughs> Um, just, just Joe, just shout the answer if you know it. Um, that's all you have to do. That'll be uh, shouting anything then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, question number one. Uh, everyone knows that Matt Hancock, as the health secretary, took more briefings than any other minister, but which expert appeared the most times and how many times did they appear? Oh, that's a good one. Is Is it, it was it Patrick Valance? It's not Valance. <laughs> Jenny Harris. <laughs> No, it's not Jenny Harris either. I'll give you all one more go. Must be, must be, must be Chris Whitty then. Powis. Yes, Paul, well done. Got there in the end. Stephen Powis, the NHS uh, National Medical Director, appeared 22 times. Wow. Uh, I think Valence was second. Right. Or maybe Harry's. Um, I, I don't have the list. Um, but it was Powis who's appeared the most. Um, question number two. Which journalist opened his question to Chancellor Rishi Sunak with the words, oh, shit? Robert Peston. Robert Peston. Yes. <laughs> well done, Paul. <laughs> Another point for you. Uh, and the final one, uh, which government scientist told the British public, don't tear the pants out of it when the lockdown was easy? Yes, well yeah. done, Rachel. JVT. One of my favourite moments from the entire series of press conferences was Jenny Harris saying that people should test their relationship. I mean, that was just priceless, wasn't it? <laughs> Where she said, if you're worried about being separated from your boyfriend or girlfriend, you need to, it'll be, te you should test your relationship. I love that. That was magic. That. So, really clinical, wouldn't you? <laughs> I think JVT needs his own show now as well. Yeah. Well, he's not been back since he slagged off Cummings, has he? No, 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 absolutely not. Right. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so that you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. 
Uh, we'll just leave you with Boris Johnson revealing what he's looking forward to the most when the lockdown eases on July the 4th. Yeah, Mesa, as for all the things that I'm looking forward to, well, there's a very long, very long list. I'd love to go uh, to the theatre again. I'd love to go and see the Globe. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to go to a restaurant, frankly. Uh, I, would, I would love to get my hair cut. I, I want to make one thing clear. I, I would love to play village cricket again. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.